following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn to Matthew chapter 28, one of the familiar accounts of the resurrection morning. I'll read the first 15 verses. I think the bulletin says 17, but I'll read 15 verses of Matthew 28. Listen to God's Word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews even to this day. This is God's holy word. Of course, the great victory of Jesus Christ in rising bodily from the dead is joyfully celebrated this morning as we always do in remembering Easter Sunday. His historic resurrection climaxes everything the Gospels tell us about the life and purposes of Jesus, proving him to be God's eternal and invincible Son, a man whom death could not extinguish. But the curious thing to me is that every spring, about the time these Easter lilies start to wilt and turn a little brown, While we know Easter is so important, we put it in the closet. It's like the Christmas decorations taken down and put away, and you wonder what's wrong with a neighbor who still has them up by the 1st of February. And we somehow find it an odd thing if we would choose to sing a hymn in September or November 
Christ the Lord is living today. If I chose that for the September 1st Sunday worship service, you'd say, what's wrong with this guy? This isn't Easter. Why is he doing that? Isn't that curious that we think we can consign the resurrection to one part of the year or even one Sunday? By contrast, the early apostles of Jesus never found Easter to be out of season. They could never stop talking about it. As they traveled far and wide, they went to all parts of the Mediterranean world and they came to be called rather quickly witnesses of the resurrection because that was their dominant theme. Christ is risen. Peter's first sermon in Acts 2 preached in Jerusalem to huge crowds with a huge response. You remember what he said, and some of the people that were involved in the crucifixion were there when Peter said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead since it was impossible for death to hold him. And years later, Paul was being arrested in Jerusalem, and he quoted the same basic principle when he said in Acts 23, 6, I stand on trial before you because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Both Peter and Paul said the resurrection is the core, the center of the whole thing. It's not a trivial, incidental, outdated, once-a-year item of Christianity. It is Christianity. And as a matter of fact, when Paul was spelling out what one of the formulations of what Christianity is in Romans 10, 9, and 10, a very familiar passage, as some of you could say, he wrote there, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The lordship of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Those are the two requirements in Romans 10, 9, and 10, to be a Christian. So this is a very central premise. And if you would say, well, can I somehow leave out the resurrection and be a Christian? Of course not. The apostles would have told you that was ridiculous. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain and your faith is vain and you're still in your sins. Nothing has happened as a result of Christianity or the cross if Christ has not been raised. And so the clear assertion is that Jesus met, he fought against, and he vanquished the king of death, and everything is affected by that. He became the author of a new creation, a new chapter in history. And think about it. We even worship on the first day of the week instead of the last day of the week because why? It's the day of resurrection. It even changed our worship schedule. As we come to Matthew 28, I know this is a familiar story, and I would present it to you rather simply today. I want you to see two emotional responses by first the guards who were at the tomb, and then by the women who came to the tomb. And I want you to see both the similarity and yet a great difference between those responses, because I think they will be instructional to us. Both groups were shaken or were upset or were fearful. They trembled in one way or another. And yet exactly how they reacted was also very different. First of all, learn how humanity trembles with fear before God 
when he miraculously disrupts death. Here's Matthew telling us this behind-the-scenes plot to lock down the tomb. It's actually right before, if you want to read the last paragraph of chapter 27, which I did not, 2762 and following, has the, the people coming. The chief priests wanted a guard from Pilate. They wanted a Roman guard because that's the best security system there was at that time. If a Roman soldier slept on his post, he would be killed. That was the very s- simple way that they got things done. So you want a good guard, four of them that will go in four-hour watches or something, three-hour watches, you know, get the Romans. So that's what the high priest did. They said, give us a guard. Pilate said, you don't really need it, but go ahead. Make it as secure as you can. I always love the delicious irony of Matthew 27, 65. Go make it as secure as you can. And that's what they did. So here's this guard. Someone's awake the whole time. And uh, their goal, of course, was for Jesus to remain buried. They weren't worried about him being resurrected, just the idea that somebody would tamper with the grave and take the body. But isn't it great that in the providence of God, their being there is just one more good proof for what happened because we know the best security system available was on the tomb of Jesus. So if indeed he didn't rise, then explain to us, Where is he now? Where did his body go? I hope you've noticed at some time in your acquaintance with the gospel accounts of the resurrection that nowhere, including this passage, do we have a snapshot or an eyewitness testimony of the literal exact moment or sight of Jesus rising. We have an earthquake, briefly, the earth rumbled, an angel appeared, startling figure, The stone moved, but nowhere does it say, and Jesus walked out. None of the gospels say that. You know, everybody everybody likes to take selfies today. I'll probably go to my grave without, without taking a selfie. I don't even like pictures of myself at all. But there's no selfie of the resurrection. You know, we don't have Jesus with the guards. Let's record this. No, I'm, I'm, I know I'm being silly, but, but isn't it interesting that the Gospels don't give us that sight of that moment? They don't, nobody looked in and said, oh, look at that, the body's moving, he's sitting up. We don't have the moment of the resurrection. What we have are the incidentals surrounding it. The guard being terrified, the stone moving, and so on. Jesus being seen after he rose outside the tomb fascinating. God's wonder-working power was very real, and yet he didn't give us that momentary glimpse of the actual miracle. Here's the irony of it. A weak man inside the tomb who was supposed to be dead is actually alive, and the guards outside the tomb who were apparently alive were as good as dead. The roles were reversed. The guards were immobilized by fear of death. Now, I think these guards just typify a whole attitude and a whole group of responses that various human beings have in our own day and age today. Fear and uncertainty over what God is doing in relation to physical death tends to freeze people up 
immobilize them, traumatize them. People in all stations of life, educated and non-educated, religious and otherwise. An incident speaks to it so well that happened to one of our pastors a number of years ago. True incident. One of our elderly members was near death, congestive heart failure. And this pastor on our staff, not myself, went to pay a visit and had a good time, he reported, with the woman reading Scripture about hope in the face of death, talking about heaven, talking about a Christian's joy. And she was responding, and she was entering in and very much in possession of that confidence and that hope in Christ. For her, that was a a good time with the pastor. But into the room walked the daughter of this woman from out of town, who I would assume from the story that was told or what she did and said must not have been a believer and must not have had hope in Christ. She listened to a little bit as the pastor finished up talking about these things, prayed with the woman, said, okay, I'll I'll get out of the way and let you have a visit with your daughter, walked out into the hall. The daughter got up and followed him right out into the hall. And she said, let's go down the hall a ways away from my mother's door. And then she stuck her finger out and said, how dare you? How dare you talk to my mother about death? Here we are trying to keep her alive, give her hope, keep her happy, and you're telling her she's going to die. How dare you? And I only have to assume that the poor woman was deathly afraid of death. She was paralyzed. She thought if you just don't talk about it, it won't happen. Well, in a week or two, it did happen. Maybe she thought it was the pastor's fault. I'm not sure. But you see, the person who was paralyzed was not the dying woman. It was the unbelieving daughter who trembled in terror for the very idea that her mother would be taken away and and ultimately beyond that, that she too would one day die. Who knew when? She had no categories to be able to deal with it. And I guess she thought if you just push it away, don't let the subject be mentioned. You know, it's like the emperor of France, I think it was Louis XV, who said, no one is allowed to mention the word death in my presence. Guess what? Louis died. Is anybody surprised? But he was paralyzed with fear at the very word. Many 21st century pagan Americans with all their college educations and all their technology and and all their apps, you know, there's not an app for the fear of death. The app is actually here. God wrote it a long time ago. Apple doesn't make it available except I guess it's on their, it's now software on their equipment. But mere mention of the fear of death unhinges people. And dread takes hold of them because they have no idea. How will I face God? How will he deal with me? What will be the result of that encounter? We know so well that it's only those who come to have peace with God by trusting in what Christ has done at his cross in bearing forgiveness, dying as a substitute in our place, taking the wrath of God, becoming the lamb who takes away our sin that we can hope and we can come alive and we can actually be confident even in the face of death as that woman's mother was. 
but she wasn't. Humanity trembles with fear before God who disrupts death. Secondly, there's another way to tremble. That's how the soldiers tremble. Deathly afraid. Brave guys, they would face an enemy with a spear, but it's standing up to God, facing him, they might as well have had cardboard swords. They had no weapon to fight the fear that they had. Secondly, the positive way that you can tremble before God is typified by the women in this passage. The guards give us a negative example. The women give a positive example. Verse 8, they witness here to show us how believers in Christ can also tremble, but with wild joy of resurrection hope. The women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet full of joy, and they ran to tell his disciples, and suddenly Jesus himself met them. A completely different response, and yet it included trembling, it included fear, it included a certain amount of uncertainty. And yet they had had the moment to be exposed by the angel's revelation to the tomb itself. It was empty. He wasn't there. They didn't know the explanation for that, but the angel had said, don't be afraid. Look here, examine things. I want you to look this over and think about it and see what the most logical consequence and and conclusion is. Weigh the evidence and come up with the obvious conclusion. The women did that even in a short time and ran off fearful and yet joyful. Why? Because the case had begun to win them over and they were thinking, ah, he must actually be alive. Well, of course, they saw him, so they knew he was. Now, this evidence, we're not going over all the points of things that you've heard in Easter sermons before, a whole chain of evidential things that can be discussed that that give us proof, and you can read about those things elsewhere. I'm not doing that this morning. But we know that the evidence is good. When the angel said, come and see, look at the evidence, weigh it, check it out. People have looked this over who know what evidence is, legal scholars, Those of you that may be attorneys here, I'm sure have, I guess they probably give you a course in law school about evidence, don't they? I I don't know, but it's got to be a subject you study somewhere. What kinds of evidence are the best, and, and how do you build a case? A man named Sir Edward Clark from England was a scholar in this field, and he looked carefully at the evidences for Christ's resurrection, and he said, he wrote in a text, as a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the first Easter day. He said, to me, the evidence is conclusive. Over and again in the high courts of Britain, I have secured verdicts based on evidence far less conclusive than this. So the angel said, do you have an alternative having looked at the evidence? that's more convincing than the fact that he rose? When you do, you'll find there's no option but to present the most sane one of all, that Jesus did rise by the power of God. And that becomes a cornerstone for us to live a new life. So these women had the believer's reaction, which was fear and joy mixed together. Now you might say, that sounds really contradictory. I don't think people usually have fear and joy mixed together, do they? I can prove that they do. I'm standing 20 feet 
from where they do on a regular basis. The room where we robe behind here where the groom waits with me to step out to meet his bride. Fear and joy intermingled in a particular way in a young man's life. Probably much so for the bride as well. Fear and joy. That's the kind of something wonderful is going to happen. I'm going to meet my bride and and be married. But I I can remember one groom just not very long ago saying to me, and he was sweating bullets, and he said, I'd rather do anything than stand up there and speak before all those people. There's a lot of fear involved. Fear and joy. The unique fear and joy that a Christian has. You see, these two reactions separate humanity into two classes. Either you've got the fear and trembling of the soldier who who has to run away, a brave man who faces, you know, wild enemies who scream and yell and paint their faces and do all kinds of crazy things, and he fights them and succeeds, and yet he's afraid of death. Or you've got this fear and trembling that the women demonstrate for us, joyful trembling. Can we have that? Can we expect that and look for that and pray for that on Easter morning, that that would be a guiding attitude that would actually fill all our worship? You see, fear and trembling are two words that should apply to our worship. We should reverence God. We should hold God as the most high. Worship isn't just a casual, hi, God, how you doing today? Let's have a little visit. It's coming before the high and holy one. As the scripture says, he is holy, holy, holy. Who can question me? Who can, who can challenge my ways are some of the things God says. And, and those are things to think about when we come to worship. But at the same time, worship is for the kind of shouting and joy that people go into when they're at the football game and the team is triumphing or having the, the great touchdown that decides the game and You know, people go crazy over that. There should be that kind of thrill of joy. That's why they invented the word, hallelujah, for Easter. We need a word for it. It's so great. A word that we, you know, I don't say good morning, Jim, hallelujah, in in June. But we say it on Easter because we've got such a special occasion of such joy that we need a word that isn't even used any other time to describe it. And there should be some of that ecstasy, even in a Christian's regular worship. Very somber, we're told that in Kenya this past week, I believe it was Wednesday, some college students were shot by terrorists. They were shot after a separation. The separation being made was, if you're Muslim, stand over there. If you admit to being a Christian, stand over there. You're dead. And there were people whose last words were, yes, I'm a Christian. Were they fools to die that way? They faced the fear of murder and succumbed to it. You know, there's serious issues that resurrection has to face. Grief, loss. Many folks in this congregation have lost a spouse in the last year, some of them in tragic ways. This is their first Easter without an important person in their home. I've examined, as you may have at times, why am I really a Christian? I think I, 
I did this kind of thing more when I was younger. You get older, maybe you just sort of settle in to your Christianity. You don't need to take it out and re-examine it that much all the time. But think of the question this way. You know, if, if I was faced like Job with great suffering, my children died, my, my finances were ruined, and I was suffering from some terrible disease, and, and somebody came to me and said like Job's friends did, do you still think Christianity is true in light of all this terrible stuff you're going through? What do you say? I hope I could say, and I think I could say, yes, I'm still a Christian. Because Jesus Christ is more alive to me than any other person in all the universe. My wife is the most beloved person. And as far as human beings go, she's my most beloved But as far as persons in general go on heaven and earth, Jesus Christ is the greatest reality to me. And he is real. And he would be real to me regardless of whatever loss came, whatever fear of death was before me. I think that my sanity actually would stand on the indisputable fact of the risen Jesus Christ overwhelming all other facts. There's no other fact more real or more important to me than that. And nobody can shake that loose or rob me of the confidence that is in it. If Jesus Christ is dead, then his whole message was a fraud. My life has been a waste. The cross was a shameful defeat. And if Jesus is dead now, then I'm still a prisoner of my own bad thoughts and my motives and my foolish actions and decisions. And if Jesus did not rise as reported, death is certainly stronger than God, and we're right to fear it. That lady in the hospital was right to fear it above everything else. But since God proved in a historic case of his son that he absolutely is stronger than death, and since Jesus said, because I live, you also can live, then I advise you that we should all join a man whose name most of you can't spell. Maybe you can't even pronounce it. Habakkuk. How many of you have read Habakkuk lately? You don't have to raise your hands. It's a tremendous little book. A man who was angry at God, shaking his fist at God, Habakkuk in his first chapter. God, why is this happening? God told him that a a terrible terrorist the worst kind of violent men were going to come in and ruin his kingdom and take his people captive and wreck everything he knew. And Habakkuk was left. What do I do in response? You should read his response at the very end of Habakkuk 3. He said, no matter what's going to happen, I heard what the Lord said. And my heart pounded at it. My lips quivered. My legs trembled. But I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. My God lives. And he's triumphant no matter what circumstances I face. Thanks be to God.
blessed Easter to you. Father, help us to be Habakkuk, a man who faced the hardest things and watched his world crumble. Help us to be Job, who argued his way through all that with his friends, and they said, oh, it's got to be your fault, Job. And finally, he heard your voice say, where were you when I made the universe? And he bowed himself before you. Father, give us that joyful trembling, that foundational attitude for worship that we need every day of our lives. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Saturday, teach us fear and trembling as we rejoice in our risen Savior. Amen.